Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What a doctor is currently trying to do is to wait until you become sick and then whack that disease on the head, push you out the door. If something else happens, treat that one and repeat until failure. That's what I call whack-a-mole medicine. Uh, and we have to stop doing that as the only way to keep people healthy um, for longer. We need to treat diseases before they get us. And the major driver is aging. And we now have the knowledge and the technology actually to slow things down. You're listening to Dr. David Sinclair on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoengren, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, director of the Center for Stress and Anxiety Management. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. So today on the show, we have Dr. David Sinclair, and we're moving out of the arena of psychology a little bit, although this is related to our psychology, into the arena of genetics and lifespan and what is the cutting edge current information out there on why we age and what scientists are learning about how we may actually be able to slow the process of aging. And Jill, I know you've got a chance to listen to this episode, so I'm curious what your reaction was to hearing Dr. Sinclair. I did, and I found everything so incredibly fascinating. And of course, from a selfish perspective, was listening closely for what are the things that we can do now to potentially uh, make a difference and live longer. And so, you know, One of the things he talks about is that we probably shouldn't go to space, and that seemed like an easy enough thing to incorporate. And the other, maybe my favorite part of the whole episode, was he essentially gave us permission to keep drinking red wine, check. Um, But he also talked about some things like um, skipping breakfast and lunch, which I thought was a bit controversial. And I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts of some of those things. And then the last one I loved, I thought, oh, my kids are going to be in great shape because one of their favorite things is to jump from the very hot, hot tub into the very cold pool and back and forth. And apparently that was one of the things that is positive for our bodies in terms of longevity. Yeah. Well, Dr. Sinclair has been studying this for a number of years, and he is actually one of the original uh, reasons why we know now that red wine is good for us in terms of his uh, work on resveratrol that's in red wine. And What's interesting is that some of the things that he suggests that are related to sort of what what stresses our body can make it stronger, in some ways may be beneficial at a cellular level, but of course, I'm always looking at it through the lens of a psychologist and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, something like skipping meals or fasting 
is really contraindicated for someone with an eating disorder or a history of disordered eating or even at risk for an eating disorder or drinking red wine may not be good for somebody with an alcohol abuse disorder, right? So a lot of the these suggestions that are based on animal research and uh, yeast research at a cellular level may or may not take into account sort of the clinical implications when used with humans. And I think that's like anything we need to to be considerate of that and taking it into account when we're thinking about our own, what would be beneficial in our own lives. Absolutely. That there's a need to really look at this on a case-by-case basis, aside from the science when we're talking about um, working with humans who have different learning histories. Yeah. And a lot of this research is still, you know, in its early days. So we'll have to see how it pans out uh, for in longer trials with humans. I also really liked how he uh, in the book in particular, talks about some of the more societal implications of li- living longer lives and how that will impact us as a society. We're definitely moving in that direction, and we already see some of those implications as our parents live live longer than we expected and that we may live longer than we expect, how that will impact us. Dr. David Sinclair is a professor in the Department of Genetics and co-director of the Paul F. Glenn Center for the Biology of Aging at Harvard Medical School. He's best known for his work on understanding why we age and how to slow down its effects. He obtained his PhD in molecular genetics at the University of New South Wales in Sydney and worked as a postdoctoral researcher at MIT with Dr. Leonard Garanetti where he discovered a cause for aging in yeast. In 1999, he was recruited to Harvard Medical School where he's been teaching aging biology for the past 16 years. He's a co-founder of several biotechnology companies, is on the board of several others, and is the co-founder and chief editor of the journal Aging. His work has been featured in a number of ways, five books, two documentary movies, 60 Minutes, Morgan Freeman's Through the Wormhole. And he's the inventor of 35 patents and received more than 25 awards and honors, including Time Magazine's list of the 100 most influential people in the world. Welcome, Dr. Sinclair. Thanks for having me on. So you've dedicated your life to aging, and at this point in your career, you make some pretty bold and exciting claims based on your research. You say that aging is a disease and that the health consequences we associate with aging are really not inevitable. And I think that most of us, when we think about getting old, we do so with a bit of dread. We think that we're going to lose our functioning or we're going to become chronically sick but you really offer an alternative view uh, in your book that recently came out, which is called Lifespan, Why We Age and Why We Don't Have To. So I think a good place to start would be maybe sharing with us what you mean by aging is a disease and that that disease can get treated. If you look at the definition of aging versus disease, uh, and let's say you open up the Merck Manual of Geriatrics and you look at disease, it says it's a process that leads to deterioration and loss of function over time, uh, eventually, in many cases, leading to death. Uh, That sounds a lot like aging, right? So the only difference between disease and aging is that uh, aging is exactly the same as a disease, difference being that more than 50% of people get this condition. And really, it just comes down to, is it 49 or is it 51%, which is really quite an arbitrary distinction. The other reason for wanting this to be making a case for aging to be a medical condition is that we're ignoring what causes most diseases on the planet. Now, we, we, we focus on treating diseases 
when they appear, when it's often too late to do anything about it, forgetting that it's not just important to understand what makes us drop off the cliff at the end of life, but we should be working and trying to understand and postpone what's driving us towards the edge of the cliff in the first place. And diseases like heart disease and diabetes and frailty and even Alzheimer's, overwhelmingly the largest cause is aging. Young people very rarely get these diseases. Um, And we've ignored it mainly because we didn't have any clue how to treat the symptoms of aging and slow it down. But now we finally do. So what is happening when we age? Why do we lose our eyesight and get wrinkles and have heart attacks? What's what's happening at the cellular level? Because that's really your specialty. Yeah, so it's a, it's a brand new concept. So if you boil down what aging is, there are certainly lots of things that go wrong. And we've been very diligent at cataloging those changes over the last 200 years. Um, so there's no denying that things go wrong as we get older. But then you've got to ask the question, why do those things happen? And right now, nobody knows. It's just bad stuff happens. That's not a great explanation, is it? Um, so I've, I thought, I've thought about this for over 25 years. We've worked on genes that control processes and can extend lifespan in animals and seem to do so in humans. Um, but what those genes were telling us was that if you boil it down, aging is fundament- fundamentally a loss of information. Now, there are two types of information in the, bo- in the body. There's genetic or digital information encoded as A, C, T, and G in our DNA. But there's also what's called the epigenetic information, which is how the DNA is bundled up and read by the cell. So if the, cell, if the DNA is the computer, the epigenome is the software that controls it. And my theory is that we don't lose our genetic information. What we're losing is this epigenetic information. And what happens then is that cells lose their ability to read the genome correctly, and they just malfunction and lose their identity. And that leads to disease, frailty, and a lot of suffering and eventually death. And the big question is, what is that information? Where is it stored? And is there a backup hard drive of that information? So when we age, our cells are having a hard time reading the information that's stored on this hard copy of our DNA. And the epigenetic information, that, that the ability to, to read that DNA, that information gets lost. So I will ask you that question. Where, where is the information stored and, and is there a backup? Ah, good question. So the, the information... Um, is partly uh, chemicals that attach to the DNA called methyls. And we can read those changes in the lab. I could take your uh, blood, Diana, and I could actually tell you how old you are biologically within a few percent error and even predict when you're likely to die quite accurately. And that's because there's an epigenetic clock. And most scientists, probably 99.9% of scientists, actually believe that this clock is just a a measure of your age. But we have new evidence from from my lab that the clock isn't just a clock. It's actually controlling how long you live and how healthy you are. Um, And so we've been working on ways to slow down the clock, stop it, and even reprogram the cell, reboot the hard drive 
and turn the clock backward. Before we talk about what uh, we can do to treat aging as a disease, I think it would be helpful for you to spend a little bit more time talking about what epigenetics means, because we're hearing it all over the place right now. It's a pretty hot topic, but it's, I think, helpful for you to review what's happening in the epigenome and how does it work and how does it relate to our health and longevity? Yeah, so epigenetics is, is just as important as genetics. All, each of our cells has the same genome. Right, we, we all start from one egg um, and one sperm, and so the way we build a body when we're in the womb uh, is the epigenetic information. In in the same way that uh, a, a piano would be the genome, and the pianist playing the beautiful music is the epigenome. But instead of having eighty or so keys, uh, we have twenty thousand different keys in our genome, each one being a different gene. And if you want to build a nerve cell, you need to play a different tune to a skin cell and a liver cell. And that's the epigenome. How does this actually work? Well, we, we actually know a lot about that. Um, the pianist is actually uh, our structures on how the DNA is wrapped up so that if a gene is meant to be switched off your whole life, and that's, for example, a nerve cell, a nerve cell doesn't want to have a liver gene turned on. So it'll take that gene and wrap it up tightly in a bundle like you would spool uh, a hose on, on your driveway into, a, into a, a nice bundle. And if you want the brain cell, the nerve cell to remain a nerve cell, you need to turn on nerve cell genes. And the cell does that by opening up the DNA into a big loop so that it's accessible to the cell machinery to read it. And so what you have is instead of keys on the piano, you have bundles, loops, bundles, loops, loop, loop, bundles. And that's what dictates the music of our lives. And that those structures, those bundles and loops, need to be preserved for us to stay young. But over time, due to DNA damage and other insults to the body, we found that that symphony becomes disrupted, essentially like having a pianist that starts to uh, become demented. Your research has seemed to focus a lot on these longevity genes called sirtuins, and you write that they play an important role in the, I guess, the opening up of the bundles and reading the DNA. Can you describe for us what, how sirtuins work and what happens to them as we age, how they're related to the aging process? Yeah, what, what's been really rewarding and, and unifying in, of the science are the, the longevity genes that we've worked on for the last 25 years, which I first worked on when I was over at MIT with my former mentor, Lenny Garenti, just a shout out to him. He deserves the credit. Uh, these sort of two genes protect the body in many ways. They dampen inflammation. They repair DNA. Uh, they protect the, the ends of chromosomes, the telomeres. They promote cell survival. But one of their main functions is controlling these bundles of DNA to maintain the cell's identity. In other words, these are epigenetic regulators. And they lose their function over time for a couple of reasons. One is they get distracted by broken chromosomes. So every time you go in the sun or you get an X-ray or radiation, you will disrupt the structure of the chromosomes and the sirtuins will get distracted, similar to unwrapping a, a present 5,000 times. Eventually, you can no longer re-gift it. Um, and these sirtuins, these are proteins that that bundle up the DNA and say and tell the cell, 
that gene should be off when you're young and keep it off. But the problem is over time, these sirtuins, because they get distracted and less, less active as we get older, uh, these genes that shouldn't be on eventually come on. And I think in, in my view and in the, the experiments we've done in my lab, that is a primary cause of aging. I think a really helpful metaphor that you used in your book, Lifespan, that helped me understand the role of sirtuins a bit more was where you describe sirtuins as being like emergency workers who, when they're at home, they're working on some of the basics of uh, preserving the cell. So things like controlling genes and making sure that the cell is optimally functioning. But then an emergency happens like DNA damage and the sirtuins have to go off and deal with that emergency and repair the DNA but that as we age, they have a hard time finding their way back to their home, back to their, their job again. And that's what contributes to the aging process. I'd love for you to talk about some of your research that has looked into factors that can help sirtuins maintain their function and, and find their way back and eventually and help slow down this aging process. What can we do that would help us uh, slow down aging and preserve our sirtuin function. Uh, well, the first is in your in your life, don't stress them out, don't distract them. So avoid radiation um, and that kind of thing. Chemicals that that disrupt DNA, microwave plastics, for example, are bad. Um, going up in space is probably bad. But there are other ways you can you can counteract this problem. You can give your sirtuins extra activity by Going hungry, uh, so fasting. I, I skip breakfast on most days and lunch if I can. The other thing is you can exercise. That also boosts the activity of these of these uh, enzymes. And uh, so all of the things we've learned are good for us. Are actually we believe working by activating these sirtuin defenses, repairing the cell, and preventing them from losing their identity over time. So certain behaviors trigger hormesis which is the stress on the body that's good for us. And you write in Lifespan that some of the more beneficial ones are things like high-intensity interval training because it stresses our body but not too much, things like hot and cold therapy, saunas, cold showers, cold plunges do similar things. Can you describe what hormesis is? Right. So hormesis is the concept of what doesn't kill you makes you live longer. Um, makes you stronger. And we discovered that the sirtuin genes in yeast cells, we studied yeast at first back in the 2000s, that the same gene that controls lifespan is also activated by heat and uh, starvation or low amounts of amino acids, low amounts of sugar. And the organisms that the little yeast cells lived longer but not if we deleted the sirtuin gene from the sirtuin gene from the, the cells. So that was the first proof of concept that hormesis is working through a single gene um, or a group of related genes. And what those genes do is they turn on autophagy, which is the destruction of proteins in the body. It's a fasting response. So what the body does when it's hungry is it will start using not just the fat in the body or the sugar, it'll actually eat protein. And that's called autophagy. And that's thought to be very healthy because if we just let the body accumulate old proteins and misfolded proteins, uh, they end up causing diseases like Alzheimer's. 
I, I'm curious about cold therapy and hot therapy. I've been trying out taking some cold showers or turning my shower halfway through to cold. And I'm wondering, is this really effective in triggering this process of hormesis? And what's happening in my body on a cellular level when I'm doing this? Uh, well, the, the longevity gene um, field that I'm in hasn't tested this in sauna and cold tubs. But the, the, in writing my book, I had to research this. And I found a surprising amount of positive uh, data that says that being cold and being hot uh, is good for you and probably is turning on your longevity genes um, as a result. And we, in the lab, when we study things like yeast cells and mice, we definitely see that, for example, making them cold will turn on the sirtuin number three gene, and that will get give you brown fat, which is very healthy fat. Um, it exists on, in our body on our back, typically. We didn't know it existed for, for at least until 10 years ago. And uh, so, you know, there are reasons to believe that being cold, being hot for certain amounts of time are good. We don't know the optimal. Um, you know, I... I do it as much as I can bear, which is about 15 minutes in the sauna followed by two, two or three minutes in the cold plunge at four degrees Celsius. Um, but, you know, some people can do more than that. What about pharmacological interventions? What uh, molecules are you studying in your lab that may also help us slow aging? So it's still the early days, but we we found a few chemicals that, that activate the sirtuins. Uh, one of them we discovered many, many years ago uh, in the early 2000s as uh, the accelerator pedal for the sirtuins. So this molecule from red wine called resveratrol uh, and, and plant molecules like it uh, are actually very good at activating the sirtuins. And so we've fed resveratrol to mice and they've been much healthier on a Western diet. And now there's hundreds of studies of resveratrol extending the lifespan of of mice, among other things, particularly on a bad diet that we, we all like to en enjoy. And uh, the second are a class of molecules that are more like the gas or the petrol for, for these, the, the fuel, and that, that molecule is called NAD. Now, NAD or NAD, some people call it, is found throughout the body, and we need it to be alive. We, we die in, in 30 seconds if we didn't have NAD. But the sirtuins, they need a lot of NAD to be active and to, to protect the cell. And we think as we get older, and certainly in animal studies, this is true, we make less and less NAD. And so one thing that I've been doing pharmacologically is giving mice um, and also myself um, molecules that raise NAD levels in, in the hope, and in the case of mice, um, the, the proof that you can actually reverse some aspects of aging. I'll give you one example. We can feed mice NMN. We just give it to them in their drinking water. And old mice that are about the equivalent of a 65, 70-year-old human at two years of age go back to being two months of age and can outpace even young mice. And that's because we give them more energy and they build new blood vessels as though they've been exercising. So by boosting sirtuins, you can mimic fasting, you can mimic exercise without actually having to do those things. But I'll, find, I'll say finally... It's not an excuse to sit on the couch because we find that mice that are fasted or exercised have an even greater benefit when they take NMN.
So resveratrol and NMN support the sirtuins in doing the work of repairing aging. It seems like there's a lot of research that you have from mice. Uh, there's some good longer-term data on resveratrol in humans. Have you found any negative side effects associated with taking NMN? Um, n- nothing negative. Um, otherwise, I, I wouldn't be taking it. We've, um, we've, we've tested mice, of course, for many years. We've been studying it for probably a decade now. Uh, We've looked at it in the context of cancer, which is always the concern that people raise. We haven't seen any evidence from my lab um, or from others that that cancer is exacerbated. Um, And in some cases, in the case of breast cancer, in mice at least, it seemed to slow the growth growth of the cancers. Now, there's always the risk, right? I'm not saying this is completely risk-free. If if I had a big tumour in my body, I'd still be cautious because this molecule does boost blood vessels. And you don't want to uh, improve blood flow in your tumor, which might make it worse. But I haven't seen anything, um, even from other labs, that cause me concern. Um, the other thing is we've been doing clinical trials with a molecule related to NMN that uh, we've looked at for over two years in, in subjects, in human subjects. And again, there's been no sign of adverse uh, issues. But of course, true evidence of Safety will only come from long-term human studies, which we plan to do. So do you have a prescription for how much of these behavioral strategies and molecules we should be taking and doing? Is the research that far yet? We don't know the optimal is the answer. And actually, the big debate and the frontier of this field is trying to figure out what are the correct combinations. When do you take the molecules? When do you exercise? Should you skip the molecules the day you exercise or not? What happens if you take the molecules, exercise, and go to the sauna? Is that too much? And we don't know the answer to that yet. But that's why people like myself are trying this, um, you know, with some self-experimentation, not because I'm trying to live for 200 years. That's not the point. It's really trying to accelerate discovery and trying to figure this out before it's too late for all of us. You write in Lifespan, quote, More than anything else in the world, I want everyone to expect that they will meet not only their grandchildren, but their great-grandchildren and their great-great-grandchildren. And what has been interesting to me is that when I talk about your work with either my clients or my colleagues or my family members, the most common response I've gotten from people is, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to live to 120 or 150? That sounds horrible. How do you respond when people at the idea of living a longer life? Well, we, we usually think of the people we are in the future as different people, right? We don't identify with, with ourselves in the future. Uh, and that's the problem. But if we're, if we're 70 or 80 and we're in good health, we, we definitely don't, don't want to die. We don't want to kill ourselves. And the same would, would be true if you're 150. If you have a loving family, and you have no aches or pains or illnesses, you're not going to want to shoot yourself. No way. That, that, that's just, that's, that's rubbish if, if you believe that that's true. You know, if I told you, Diane, today that, Diana, today that you're 100 years old um, or 150, would you go jump off a, off a bridge? No, right? It's all about how you feel. And the, the misconception is that at 150 or let's, let's say at, at 100, you have to be sick and you have to be frail and you have to look horribly old. That's not true. We have 
technologies that can slow down aging, that can even reverse some aspects of it. And so the idea of wanting to live longer, it's more about staying healthy, staying productive. And if you if you talk to my father, who's now 80, with you know, with a physical and mental state of a 20, 30-year-old, perfect hearing, eyesight, driving a car, traveling the world, going out every night with friends. You know, this is what I'm talking about. This is the world that I want for everybody, not just for the select few who've taken care of themselves in the right way. And is your father following your protocol? Is that why he's got perfect eyesight and he's out in the world in this way? Well, he's definitely taking care of himself with things like exercise. Um, and he is following the same protocol uh, that I talk about on page 304 of my book, if anyone wants to jump to the cheat sheet. But yes, he is taking resveratrol and and metformin and a bunch of other things that we do in our daily lives. We're all scientists in the Sinclair family. We can look at the data. We can judge the the benefits versus the risks. The risks to an 80-year-old are massive if you don't do anything. Massive. It's, It's not a pretty sight. No one would wish this on themselves or their family. And the downsides that we know about are very, very small. We don't know of any downside of the, the activities that he and I are doing. So, you know, it's a very, very simple calculation for us. Uh, and so, yeah, he, he's, uh, he wasn't looking forward to getting old, but the older he gets, the happier and, and more uh, satisfied he seems to be with life. It seems that to be a geneticist, you have to also be a bit of an ethicist in the process. And in your book, you address not only the science and the research you've done in terms of understanding longevity, but also a lot of the criticisms that you've received. Can you share some of those with us and how you respond to them? Yeah. Well, the typical criticism is, David, you're going to ruin the world. We need, we need older people to die and to replace them. Um, and if, if you had said that 100 years ago when people were dying in their 50s and 60s, and said, oh, we don't want anyone to live beyond 60. It'll ruin the world. You know, how would that come across today? People in their 60s are sometimes in the prime of their life. Um, And so we we adapt. We change how we look at old age. And in the future, people who are 80 and 90 will still be working. Many of them still are today. But most people will be still working, playing tennis, educating their grandkids, starting new careers. That's a a world that I, I think that we would all want. My, my rebuttal is also, well, how, how much would you give for an extra two months with your parents or an extra two months with your grandparents? And then people say, oh, I would love that. You know, so when you make it personal, people want it. It's just when they think on a global scale, many people start to panic. But if you crunch the numbers, as I have and are described in, in, the, in my book, the, the issues are not there. We've always had people living longer. Um, than before. And we, we cherish uh, people now in their 60s and 70s who are leading companies and being managers and educating the public. We wouldn't want Bill Gates or uh, some of these uh, CEOs or people who are just wonderful, generous people um, you know, dying off early. I mean, how, how much benefit are they, they bringing to the world in their old age? You know, and someone like Bill Gates would have, would have been old 100 years ago. So that's my argument. Um, Population isn't an issue. The number of people on the planet will not go up up dramatically just by extending people's lives. Um, 
And also what we're finding is that fertility rates go down as we become wealthier and healthier, and uh, especially in developing countries, but also in Europe, Japan, the US, we're barely at replacement right now. So this is not the, the end of the world that people imagine might happen if we start to help people live longer. And lastly, I'd say in defense, what is medical research about if it's not about making people free of disease? And that's exactly what I'm trying to do. I tend to think that I take a natural approach to living. And you opened my mind up a little bit in lifespan when you write about your response to the criticism that it's just not natural to try and fight aging. Can you talk about that? Well, I was on a on a plane to uh, to Tokyo and the fellow next to me uh, didn't like the idea that, that we were messing with, with what's natural. And I said, well, we're on a plane, we're drinking drinks, we're texting our, our partners, watching movies at, you know, 30,000 feet. What about any of this is natural? Uh, you know, don't, don't tell me that, that just because something's natural, uh, we should accept it, especially if it reduces our quality of like aging does. You don't underestimate in the book the impact of living longer at both the individual level and the societal level. And some of the things that you talk about are what happens when you're 70 years old and you have all this wisdom, but you also have lots of vitality. How will that impact our careers? Will we need some kind of sabbatical and start a second career? And how will longevity impact our relationships? Uh, Esther Perel, who's a relationship expert, recently came to Santa Barbara, and she even talked about this, how longevity might be changing the course of our marriages, that we may have many iterations of marriages. And another thing that I think about is when I'm working with young adults, so if I'm doing therapy with like a 25-year-old, and they're coming in talking about this urgency to go to graduate school or figure out their life's career, I suggest to them that they may have more time than they think that they do, and that we kind of we start to consider things like gap years. Can you talk about some of the societal implications of living longer? Yeah, our lives are are going to be different than what we expect. What we typically do is we look at our parents or our grandparents as role models for what our lives will be like. That's that's got to change because you know my grandparents died in their seventies. My father, you know, by, in contrast, is healthy and started a new career in his, in his early 80s. And my life will be even different again. And so will, you know, a 20-year-old today can expect to live to about, you know, 100. A child born today, actually, in the U.S., if trends continue as they have for the last 200 years, will expect, can expect to live to 104 and a child in Japan today can expect to live to 107. Now, that's, of course, assuming that these technologies continue to improve. Uh, but, you know, it's been going pretty well for us for the last 200 years, and I expect it to continue. Now, what can you do with the life of 104 or 110? Well, you can have multiple careers. You can take time off. In fact, we think these technologies will allow or could allow women to have children for longer as well. So you don't feel so rushed to have a family. And, uh, you know, my wife in, included uh, has had to take a break from her career um, because of children, especially early in her life, in her early 30s. So we, we do, we should expect to have different lives than what, than what we currently taught. And that includes relationships. Some, some people are lucky finding the right person, but if you don't, 
you have a chance to find the right person in a life that's that long. But there will be some drawbacks. There will be um, people that we don't want to live longer. There are some despots. There will be dictators that will have access to these same medical technologies. Um, And, you know, there's always some downsides to technologies. But as I argue in my book, the upside to this uh, technology is, you know, going to not just change our lives individually, but it's going to change society in a good way. Um, But then ultimately, it's going to save tens of trillions of dollars across the globe each decade. And that technology won't go away and we'll keep saving that money. And importantly, that's money that can be spent on uh, finding new solutions to energy, solving climate change or helping with climate change, um, and also allowing us to have less impact on the planet. There's no better way to save money than perhaps stop all defense spending, which of course we, we just could not do. Well, it, it's interesting because the flip side of it is that what what is the impact of knowing that you're going to live to 100 or 150 years in terms of our, our view of life? And some people propose that life has meaning because it's finite in some way. I'm curious what your response would be to that. Will people put off things longer or not see life as precious when they think that they have more time? Anyone who thinks that we should be worried about mortality to give life meaning should go back to the Middle Ages and then we shouldn't provide medicines to people. Would that make life better? Absolutely not. And this is the same silly argument. Um, I don't, you know, maybe somebody, maybe people are different than everyone in my circle. Uh, but I don't find meaning because I'm scared of dying. I find meaning in my work, in my family, in my friends, doing good things on the planet. And I don't wake up every morning in a panic because I'm worried about dying. And here's the good news. I don't know how to make somebody immortal. That's not going to happen in our lifetimes, guaranteed. So we're still going to die. We still could get hit by a bus. The the agency to life is still going to be there. We just get extra healthy years to be able to do more with our lives than ever before. Well, I think it's fun to to think about how it would change our planet if the people who are the wisest, our elders, we're we're also quite healthy. And if we could live longer in the state of wisdom, what would be the implications? I'm also, I also wonder about what what would happen in terms of the impact on our medical system, because there's this parallel in terms of what's happening in the medical system and what's happening in mental health. The field of psychology has really shifted over the past decade from models of disease and pathology and diagnoses to models that are looking more at well-being. And scientists are shifting away towards these diagnoses toward and more towards questions about what are the processes involved in human flourishing. And I'm wondering if there would be a similar shift in the medical system and what your thoughts are about how the medical system is going to change and and what your hopes about it in terms of how it will change? Uh, Well, we'll always have diseases. They're not going away. Uh, But what I'm hoping is that that gerontology becomes a respectable profession. Right now, gerontologists, uh, you know, treat people at the end of life before it's, uh, you know, well after it's it's, uh, possible to have a big impact on people's lives. But I, I, my hope is that with these new technologies and with the knowledge we now have, that treating uh, people before they become elderly and before they become frail will be commonplace. 
Uh, right now, if you go to your doctor and say, well, I've just turned 50, do a blood test, and the, the test comes back, well, you're actually 75 biologically. And literally, I could do that test on you now. That That's not difficult. Costs maybe a few hundred dollars. Right now, if you came back as 75 years old at, a, at age 50, your doctor wouldn't do anything. They are not equipped. They're not educated. And they don't even think it's worth treating. What a doctor is currently trained to do is to wait until you become sick and then whack that disease on the head, push you out the door. If something else happens, treat that one and repeat until failure. That's what I call whack-a-mole medicine. Uh, and we have to stop doing that as the only way to keep people healthy um, for longer. We need to treat diseases before they get us. And the major driver is aging. And we now have the knowledge and the technology actually to slow things down. There's evidence that a drug called metformin, which is a type 2 diabetes drug, that's very safe, taken by probably more than 100 million people across the world, that also seems to protect people against aging itself and the diseases such as cancer, heart disease, and even Alzheimer's. It costs maybe, what, five cents to make that pill, I bet? It's not expensive. But right now, your doctor doesn't prescribe it because there's no education that it's doable and there's no education that aging is even a thing. What are the things that you're doing personally to slow the process of aging in your life? Sure. Well, I can't give away my whole book, um, but I can give you, give you the, a high-level look at what I do. Um, so my father and I and, and my wife, so we're all scientists, I take resveratrol from red wine and um, an NAD booster. It's called NMN. And I also take metformin on most days. I work out in the gym at least once a week. I do uh, weightlifting, a little bit of endurance only for about 15 minutes. That's all that it seems to be needed. Um, and also I do some stretching. Then I go to the sauna for, uh, for fun with my son. Uh, and then I jump in a cold tub and maybe a hot tub. That for me is the main things that I do, but there are other things that I do, things that I avoid, which I think are going to accelerate aging, um, avoiding things that cause DNA breaks, for example. Um, and that's the main paradigm, making my body uh, get out of its complacency. You know, if you think about the 20th century and, and early 21st, companies have thrived because they give us pleasure. They make our lives simpler and, uh, and much less, uh, you know, you have to work a lot less in terms of physical work. Now, that's all great. We eat a lot. We're satisfied. We don't have to run. We don't have to walk. But that's been the worst thing for our speed of aging. Uh, being obese will accelerate aging. Sitting around will accelerate aging. And so will um, always being fed. So I skip uh, at least one, hopefully two meals a day. And uh, I avoid sugar. I avoid have avoided dessert since about uh, my four, since I turned forty. Um, although I do steal dessert from my wife occasionally, I'm only uh, only human, um, and occasionally I drink some red wine. Uh, that I don't think there's any harm in having a moderate moderate amount of uh, of wine as well. And you look like younger than forty. I don't know how old you are, but uh, I think you mentioned somewhere in your book that you're fifty. Uh yeah, I'm fifty. Thanks. I'd, I'd probably feel I'd probably look better if I wasn't born in Sydney, Australia, where we 
sunbaked. I know, the sun. <laughs> I know. Uh, what, what about relationships? Uh, one of the longest studies of adult life is occurring right there at your institution at Harvard, the Harvard Study of Adult Development. And it's been going on for almost 80 years. And one of their findings is that one of the best predictors of a long healthy life is positive relationships, how happy we are in our relationships. What's happening there? Well, yeah, I know a little bit about it, but, but, but you're, you're more educated than me in, in relationships. But at the biological level, um, there are stress hormones like cortisol, cortisol, which are bad for you over time. And it may be that loneliness and just overall psychological stress is going to age you faster. Um, and yeah, I, I think that 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 you're right that these people who are centenarians they they have there's a theme most of them say they drink a bit of red wine every day uh, most of them say they've been very active and then they also say that they uh, they have family and friends and have not taken life too seriously I have a six-year-old son, so I appreciated the wisdom that you shared in your book about what your grandmother told you when you were six years old, and that she told you that six is the best age and that we should do our best to live our life with the spirit of a six-year-old. And I can really feel that spirit in your work. And I'm wondering, why did you dedicate your life to aging research? Uh, well, I've always been a scientist uh, at heart trying to figure out things. I'm very curious. Uh, but I became very curious about aging early on because my grandmother, who helped raise me, told me that at the, at the age of four, actually, she told me that, that we're all going to die and she, that she's going to become sick. And, and I couldn't just, could not imagine her becoming sick and eventually dying because she was uh, not just a role model to me, but but she was in the prime of her life. She was in her 40s. She was a very young grandmother. And uh, I just thought, what a horrible thing that is to, for uh, God or evolution to give us humans consciousness um, and then let us go through that. that that's very cruel. And so I, it didn't escape my mind. And then when I became actually a scientist uh, in my teens, I thought that I could apply my knowledge uh, to helping humankind. And that's what my grandmother said. She said, stay young at heart, don't grow up and do your best to help humanity. And so I thought, you know what, she was right that uh, I could help humanity. And the best way I could do that was to help people live longer lives. I thought about being a doctor. Uh, in my teenage years, I, I had very little empathy. Um, and so I went into science instead, and got a degree in genetics to see if I could use what we used to call genetic engineering to solve one of life's biggest mysteries. And there's so much empathy and thoughtfulness in your book, in addition to science. You end by saying that we're going to have to be more empathetic, more compassionate, more forgiving, and more just. And you say that we're going to have to be more human if we're going to live these longer lives. In closing, what does it mean to you to be more human? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm appealing to what my grandmother said, that humans are capable of great evil. She lived through the Second World War and the aftermath. But I'm appealing to the best of humanity, which is what my grandmother said that we're all capable of. And what I went through as a teenager was this dichotomy of thinking that humans are the evil 
species on the planet and they're, they're killing off all the animals, um, to actually realizing uh, in my 20s and especially later in life that, that humans are really special, that they're uh, wonderful uh, creatures, that they're, they're loving, they're super interesting, and that, that together we can solve any problem. You know, I always imagined that there'd be, and this is going to sound a little crazy, that there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of aliens out there and we're just one and we're not a very special one. But, you know, we've never found anything out there. We are probably it in the whole universe. We are the most intelligent, complex things in the universe. We're very special uh, and we need to use that, um, you know, to save ourselves, to save the planet. Um, because ultimately, you know, everything's doomed unless we we save it. And so I, I've completely flipped and and uh, devoted my life to making humanity the best it can be. And I'm hoping that more people will join me, um, having read my book, um, in proving that we humans can do a lot better. Lifespan is an inspirational book, both in terms of what I can do in my life right now to make some changes, but also it starts to lay a platform for us to think about what are the implications for our future, our children's future, our lives down the road. And you toggle between these two concepts really beautifully. Thank you for your life's work in this area, Dr. Sinclair. And I'm sure that there will be many people now and in the future that will be thanking you for dedicating your life to this. Well, thanks, Diana. I appreciate the kind words. Writing a book isn't that easy. Um, and it's nice to hear that it's having an, an impact. Um, And thank you for all the work you do, too. I appreciate the chance to be on. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please help us out by writing a review on iTunes. We'd like to thank our interns, Dr. Catherine Foley-Saldania and Dr. Katie Lear. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. We're at offtheclockpsych.com.